Welcome to the latest episode of Tech to Transform, the Mantis podcast. This time, we focus on the UK's global leadership in scientific research and innovation, as our managing director, Eleanor Willock, meets one of the UK's most accomplished scientific business leaders, Paul Vernon. Paul is the executive director of business and innovation at the government's Science and Technology Facilities Council. Take a listen. Hello, welcome to the next Tech to Transform podcast. I'm Eleanor Willock. I'm the managing director at Mantis, and I've got an amazing guest today. I'd like to um, introduce everybody to Paul Vernon. Paul, hello. Hello, Eleanor, and uh, thank you for such a fabulous introduction. So perhaps you can tell everybody listening where you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm the executive director of business and innovation for the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Um, which is part of UK research and innovation, which is the eight billion pound plus funding agency, which is part of government. Um, But I have another job as well, because I'm the head of Darsbury Laboratory, which is the UK's national laboratory in the North. Which if anybody is listening who works in technology or the science technology field, everybody will be very happy to. I'm very excited, I think, to learn more about Darsbury. So perhaps we better kick off by explaining those two roles. Perhaps if you explain UKRI first, and then we'll talk about Darsbury and its role. Okay, well, UKRI was set up three or four years ago, I think, now, um, by the merging of seven research councils, Innovate UK and Research England, under one umbrella. Yeah. So we used to have um, chief executives at each of those individual entities. We now have executive chairs and there is one overall uh, chief executive of UKRI who is Professor Dame Ottoline Laser. Mm-hmm. Um, UKRI is, uh, it reports effectively to um, the business energy and industrial strategy department. So quasi quarting, I guess, and ultimately Boris Johnson, they're, they're my bosses. Cool, I'm managers. So um, tell us how Darsbury fits into that mix. Okay, well, I work for the Science and Technology Facilities Council, which is one of the original um, seven research councils. And UKRI, when it brought all of them together, uh, there's a lot of commonality amongst the research councils. Uh, A lot of what they do is, is about funding research primarily in universities. And STFC does some of that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we fund the research in universities around astronomy and particle physics. Um, but actually what sets us apart from the other research councils is that we run the national laboratories. Mm-hmm. Our national laboratories are there to provide the national scale research infrastructure and to support international research infrastructure. Um, the kit that we have at our laboratories is the sort of stuff really that only national governments can afford. Industry can't afford it. Universities certainly can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So if somebody needs a, a neutron source, you can't go and buy one on eBay. No. What you have to do is you have to develop these things up. And we have ISIS, our neutron source, which is um, the most cited neutron source in the world, I think. But just saying a neutron source really doesn't do this thing justice. It's actually... <laughs> It is vast. We have two enormous hangars, which are just full of concrete and instrumentation. Uh, We are the major shareholder, 86% 
shareholder in the Diamond Light Source, which is the UK's national syncretron. And this is an enormous donut-shaped thing in the middle of the Oxfordshire countryside, um, which uh, is absolutely fundamental to supporting high-end science in the UK. Wasn't we have it on some the news recently. Sorry, wasn't it on the news recently? It's it's on the news all of the time. I yeah. don't know if you saw um, what was on recently. I'm I'm often sat there with my children watching science programs because I make them watch science programs. Good. And and the diamond light source turns up, and I thought, oh, that's, that's one of ours, and they they look quite bored, to be honest with you. But for a nerd like me, it's it's mind blowing. Um, wow. We have some of the world's most intense pulse lasers. So we have a laser called Vulcan, which I'm reliably informed manages to focus the entire energy output of the continental US down onto the head of a pin. That's so, going to be useful. That's going to be useful at some point, I'm sure. I can't. I find it so hard to comprehend that kind of energy. And, and that's a, that's for high energy plasma physics and research into fusion, which is potentially one of the. Um, the, the solutions to our energy problem. Energy crisis, yeah. Um, we, we've got our own space department. We manufacture space instrumentation. There are over 200 instruments that have been launched into space that we've made at SDFC. So it's, it's really, really big, expensive stuff. So not many people will have been inside the facility, or I, I'm, I'm sure not many people listening today. Can you walk me through it? So um, tell us where it is and um, the sorts of people that might work there and, and what it might look like if I was to come through the front door. Yeah, okay, well, Darsbury is based in the northwest of England. It's about halfway between Liverpool and Manchester. And um, it, was, it was originally established in 1962, so this is our 60th year, so we're, um, we're gonna be celebrating that sometime later on in the year. And it was set up um, to house something called the Northern Institute's Nuclear Accelerator, or NINA. And um, so back, back then, there was, these things weren't very common. And um, we had a, a scientist who, who came up with this idea that if he cut a hole in the side of it, he'd managed to get something called synchrotron radiation out of it. And um, they allowed him to do that. And, and synchrotron radiation came out. And that became so popular that they took that away and they built the world's first dedicated synchrotron. So we have um, just over here, a, a circular concrete building, which is the birthplace of synchrotron radiation. There are 70 odd synchrotrons in the world. now. Every single one of them can trace its genesis back to this site here. Every wow. single drug that comes on the market, comes to the market because ultimately of work that was done here. So there's a real history to this place. The three Nobel Prizes that were worked on on this site, um, but things can't stand still. So the synchrotron came to an end and um, we decided that what we needed to do was actually broaden the appeal of the laboratory. So we continue to develop absolutely cutting edge stuff here, um, but we've gone and built what some people call a science park around us. So we've co-located with loads of really nice shiny new buildings, mm -hmm. nearly 150 real high-tech cutting edge companies around the National Laboratory. So we still got our science stuff here. We have the Hartree Center, which is the, um, a national center for artificial intelligence. 
we were really proud to be given 200 million pounds last year to set up the Hartree National Centre for Digital Innovation. And, and what that is, it doesn't look that exciting, to be honest with you. It's a really nice building with lots of really clever people in there. But it's based around artificial intelligence, machine okay. learning, cognitive computing. So we've got huge amounts of computational horsepower in there. We have real state-of-the-art visualization. So we've got a screen in there, which is, um, I think, 30 foot by 8 foot, but curved. And it works in 3D. So we can elucidate a protein structure on our synchrotron, turn it into a CAD file, fire it onto our um, screen, and you can put the goggles on, and this enormous protein appears floating in the air in front of you. Oh, wow. So and can you can walk, walk in, inside it. You can walk into it, and you can start to work out where the active sites are. So if you're into drug discovery, you can start to design molecules that will fit into those active sites just by looking at them. That, that actually brings me on to my second question, which is why, uh, and the general public and the civil service in general, why we need DARSBRI and why we need UKRI. So what's it bringing to our daily lives by having such a fantastic facility? It's, it's an interesting question. I get asked it a lot, actually. Um, most people don't really know what a neutron is, let alone what a neutron can do for them. So a lot of what we do is trying to explain to people that, you know, having something the size of two hangers, which costs an awful lot of money a year to, to run, is absolutely fundamental to the economic health of the country. Now, SDFC spends, sorry, invests somewhere in the region of 800 million pounds of taxpayers' money every year. Um, and we have to be conscious that every pound that comes into this place has to show a return. Because otherwise, yeah. why, why would the government, why would the taxpayers put up with us spending their money to do science? And the reason we do it is that science is just so important. It underpins all of the, the lifestyle that we have at the moment, the, the things that we do impact on everybody's lives. I did have a, um, a, an interesting recent conversation. I was chairing a roundtable of geneticists. And one of the things that came up regarding funding was um, genetics sort of lack of glitz and glamour um, leads it to not always be first place for funding for um, research and development and extra projects and um, things like that and um, despite its enormous importance to the longevity of the human race. Yeah well you're absolutely right and, and I have a particular resonance with that because I'm a biochemist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah the problem with biochemistry and genetics and things like that there's nothing flash and shiny to show people. You know I spent three years of my life pretty much staring at a spectrophotometer when I was doing, doing my degree. What's that? It's uh, a device that measures the change in light that goes through a sample. And that's how, how a lot of biology, biochemistry is actually done. You're looking for a, a color change and, and you infer things from it. Um, our stuff, you know, you can't necessarily see the things that are going on, but you need these massive pieces of kit to do it. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and science isn't all about big shiny stuff. You know, it's about the incremental. It's about what the big shiny stuff will allow you to do. And you talk yeah. about genetics. Well, genetics ultimately is about proteins. And, and just what I was saying, um, we have the ability, because our systems to all intents and purposes are very, very large microscopes. And we can look at individual protein molecules and, and we can look at, um, at, at genes and we can look at mutations in genes and we can look at how those mutations affect the proteins because that's ultimately what a gene mutation leads yeah. on to and by looking at that and, and we can visualize it you know we can take that protein we can get the structure of it and we can actually look at an atom by atom map of how that protein has changed and that allows us to design the drugs as i said before um, it allows us to look at proteins that are involved in photosynthesis so we might be able to, to change how those proteins work so it makes them more efficient. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're looking at the food crisis at the moment. So increasing the, um, the, the yield from crops yep. by the sorts of genetic mutations around improving their yield or, or improving their resistance to, to insects and, and pests. Those are the sorts of real tangible things. But... You know, I've been talking about neutrons a lot. So why do we need neutrons? Um, every time you pick up your mobile phone, your mobile phone contains memory and it contains batteries. The memory and the batteries in your mobile phones have been developed from work around neutrons. Okay. So those neutrons allow us to make much more, um, much smaller faster, more effective, and more energy efficient um, processes. They allow us to explore new battery chemistry, which allows greater energy density in the storage. So your faster, smarter, shiny smartphone lasts for a day or two days now, even though it's got an incredibly power hungry processor because that processor has been optimized using the sorts of things that we've got. And the battery has been developed to be much more energy dense because we provide those facilities. So this might be, a, this is a bit off topic, but the research that you're doing, are you working on alongside scientists from companies like NXP or ARM to develop that? Or are you sharing research or how does it work? Which comes first? Um, all of the above, really. Mm. Um, our facilities are amongst the best in the world. And the, the research output from the UK, we punch way above our weight. Mm -hmm. You know, we are second only to the US in paper citations. Right. So the, the UK, the research and the innovation that goes on here really is world class. A lot of it is done in universities and the universities apply to research councils like us for funding to access our facilities. Um, we also allow um, businesses, industry to access our facilities. Okay. So um, it's well documented that Unilever use our, uh, our ISIS neutron source to look at different types of surfactants. So shampoos and soaps, and develop new detergents and things like mm -hmm. that. 
but they're also working with us at our heart tree center. So at one end, we've got the, the physical work around real soaps and surfactants, but at the heart tree, they're developing them in silica. So they're developing virtual models of the molecules of these soaps and surfactants, which means you don't have to go and spend a huge amount of time and money in chemistry labs producing these things. No. You can imagine them in a computer and we can model how they work. I think modeling is to this, you know, comparatively weakling science brain, modeling has, has changed so much about what we can achieve, hasn't it? Because it's it's so much of a yeah. safer resource in lots well, of we, We've got a system over there, which is a virtual wind tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, virtual course, wind tunnel. Virtual wind tunnel. And, and we've got it on a huge screen, so you can have a full-size car in a virtual wind tunnel. Virtual wind tunnel. Um, and by the flick of a switch or press of a button, you can change the car. You can either change the shape of what's in there, or you can change, we've got models of models. So we can stick a Range Rover in there. We worked with um, a company called Briggs Automotive, which is based not far from us here. And they, they build a single seater car called the Mono. Mm -hmm. And working with them in our virtual wind tunnel, we were able to increase the downforce and the efficiency of their car, but mm -hmm. nobody actually went and made anything. We did it all virtually. Would a Formula One prototyping team do the same? Or would they? Formula One does things very similar, I must mm -hmm. But of course, if a Formula One company has that sort of system, which most of them do, they're not going to let not going to let a small or medium-sized enterprise no. that needs access to them to get there. So I you know, in some ways, that's what we do. We democratize democratizing science, yeah, cutting-edge stuff, because even the large companies generally can't afford the sorts of things that we've got, so they come to us. But we don't differentiate. The small companies get access to what we've got just as much as the big companies do. And we've got funding schemes also to make it happen. So it's not cheap to access some of our things, but we can fund it sometimes for these businesses. And it, you know, it's real game-changing stuff because they can do things that, that they would never have imagined were possible. And by being at Certainly, if you look at the way we, we use our, our supercomputers and our, our modeling capabilities, the, the ability to come in and do things on a computer instead of going and building a physical prototype saves a huge amount of time and money and effort. I'm a big fan of supercomputers. I've, um, I've been lucky enough to work on um, IBM for a big part of my career on the supercomputing team. And uh, I will actually never forget the first supercomputer I saw in action, which was the Mare Nostrum in Barcelona, which is obviously beautiful because it's inside a big converted church, but I was astounded. And um, this, but I felt the same um, when I went to Bletchley Park as well. Bletchley Park just blew my mind. Um, it just felt so incredible to be somewhere where so much changed <laughs> really. well, Bletchley Park is the uh, the birthplace pretty much of computation and Belgium yeah. is the birthplace of synchrotron radiation but computation is incredibly important to us here as well well you're the near Hartree. enough you're near enough to Manchester aren't you so it's all about yeah, yeah. doing well the, the Hartree National Centre for Digital Innovation is a collaboration with IBM yeah 
Um, and actually, one of the developments that we're doing on site here at the moment is we're just we're having to build a new supercomputing centre because the supercomputing centre that we've got isn't big enough for the next generation of machine that we're going to be bringing here. Um, but we're doing it responsibly. One of the things that, that is, is a thread throughout what we do, it's about sustainability. Okay. You, you can never make supercomputers ultra sustainable. No. Because they consume, by necessity, huge amounts of energy. Um, that energy has to be seen as an investment into the future. That doesn't mean you can't do your best to make sure that your supercomputer and supercomputing centre is efficient as they can be. So we're putting solar panels on the roof. We're looking at ground source cooling. We're looking at reusing the heat to heat other buildings here. Sure. Um, this might be a bit off topic, but how does the, um, in inverted commas, energy crisis affect a place like yours that uses so much electricity? Um, well, it's a challenge. Yeah. You know, our energy bill has gone up 20 million pounds this year. Right. That's quite a significant jump, isn't it? It is a significant jump, yeah. Um, we were already doing quite a lot to try and mitigate that. You can't mitigate it down to, to nothing. We have two enormous campuses which have very energy intensive pieces of kit on them. Um, so we've got an environmental sustainability plan, which is about making our, our real estate better. But I think the biggest impact that we can make as an organization is to try and develop the future. Yeah, make it count. So a lot of the things that we're doing, we have a number of research pro projects, which some of them are ours, so we use our own facilities to look at um, uh, new ways to, to reduce energy and decarbonize. We've just spun out a company, um, which is called Sunborn Systems, which is a joint venture with a company called Reaction Engines. Mm -hmm. um, and Sunborn Systems is about um, getting away from carbon-based fuels. So we have, we've developed the ability to use ammonia as a fuel. Oh, wow. Um, and we have technology which allows us to break the ammonia down into hydrogen. So hydrogen is one of those, those things that people are talking about as, as a, the future of energy. Um, ammonia, actually, though, is already there. Hydrogen's not there. It's not easy to move around. It's not easy to produce, not easy to store. Ammonia is the second biggest bulk chemical shipped around the world. So if we can start using that as a fuel. Is it? Behind yeah. what? What's first? Crude oil. Crude oil. I think. Makes sense. Um, but ammonia, um, ammonia won't burn enough for engines. But if you run it through a system called a cracker, we can break some of that ammonia down to hydrogen. And a hydrogen and ammonia mix, you can tailor the burn. So you can be really smart. So ultimately, we could fuel jet engines in aircraft from ammonia with a cracker system. So you've immediately got to jet zero. Immediately he's overstating it. These can, ammonia, can ammonia be a, um, an animal byproduct? Well, ammonia is. Yeah. Maria. It's from I, Maria, I, isn't it? Yeah. I have to put AdBlue into my, um, my car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really derived from pig's urine. Mm -hmm. But it's the ammonia in it. that uh, Ammonia is currently actually made from... Um, believe it or not, natural gas. 
yeah. take nat natural gas, run it through a steam methane reformer, which um, strips out the carbon dioxide and makes hydrogen. Then that's reacted with nitrogen in the Haber-Bosch process, uh, and you get um, you get ammonia. We've actually done that in a completely green way. So we have a wind turbine which is connected up to a Harbour Bosch system, so we can make completely green ammonia from winter from a wind turbine, and then we can take it and burn it in an engine. So we've got this this system which we're demonstrating um, where you can you can make green ammonia. You must be. I mean, you're obviously surrounded by every type of every sort of vertical of science every day, and um, how. How immersed are you in the technology that goes with it? Do you have to pay lots of attention to the um, the tech that sort of drives this along? I, I guess you don't have to. You know, I'm the director of the lab, and and my job is really to go out and make people realise how amazing this place is, and make sure that we have the the interest because ultimately, you know. We are government funded and, and we have an audience and the audience, well, some people like to think it's the politicians, actually it's the voters, it's taxpayers. Mm. We need to prove to them that it's something that's worthwhile. You don't necessarily need to be right at the, the forefront in my job of the science. The problem that I've got, of course, is that I've been a nerd since as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And it just fascinates me. And I, can, and I can tell by the way you talk about it. You're so you're just so involved. It's fantastic. Um, so know, that's what keeps me here. It's just every well, day there's something amazing. You know, just before I came to talk to you, um, I, I was having a tour of something that we have on site. So we're working with a company called Advanced Oncotherapy, and they're developing a new generation of proton therapy systems for treating cancer. Mm -hmm. And I've just been to have a look around what it is these guys are doing. And it's not just them, it's our people. It's the people mm -hmm. in SCFC, in Darsbury Laboratory, who are working hand in hand with the people in advanced oncotherapy and with, with colleagues from CERN as well. I'm off to CERN in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Um, and we're working together to produce a new type of cancer therapy system. That's on the site here. You couldn't help but be enthralled by that, could you? I was going to ask, theoretically, if you had an open day, what would be drawing the biggest crowd? What would, what would people be thronged around at the lab? I think the easiest thing for people to understand is the visualisation around mm -hmm. the supercomputer. Um, there's plenty of other stuff as well. Do you know, we, we get a bit blasé about it, so I can look out of my window here, and just over there, there's, there's a, a rather unprepossessing white thing stuck in the car park. It's the world's first ever MRI scanner, magnetic really? resonance imaging. It's just at the back here. We need to do something with it, actually. We'll probably put it in a museum, but it's just sat over here. You can get a bit blasé about this when you're... I'm sure. When you work in this an organisation like this. You know, you can take people around the place and, you know, the world's... Have you fast. got it because you invented it? No, no, we were using the magnets. Oh, OK, as you do. <laughs> Recycling, upcycling, fantastic. Actually, 
that those things are, are enabled by an invention that came out of the Rutherford Appleton laboratory. It's called Rutherford Cable, which has enabled all of this superconducting type stuff. But, you know, those are just things from history. So, so what else would people want to see? I don't know. Maybe the accelerators are amazing. I ask because um, you mentioned your kids. I've got children too. And I'm thinking my daughter had um, a, a, a mad scientist come to school and do experiments on the stage, you know, showing them how chemicals react to each other. And she came home buzzing about it, absolutely buzzing. Um, but then in Bristol, which is our nearest city, there's a museum called We the Curious, which is dedicated to science. And all the things there that really excite the children are the visualizations so the big you know anything they can be inside and touch and, and and things like that and i'm wondering how what's drawing young adults and future scientists in at the moment it... hmm. why do people come and work here well we've been we do quite a bit of staff engagement staff surveys and things um if you go and do a science degree, particularly in the areas that, that we're in, um, you know about SDFC. And SDFC is such an amazing organisation that people want to come and work for us. Mm -hmm. um, because it really is, it, it's right at the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, there, there's some things that, that we're just doing here on, on Darsbury. We're developing um, the cryo modules for PIP2. Now, this is, this is over in the States, Fermilab, world famous national lab in the states they come to us to develop the accelerators mm -hmm. for the next um, uh, experiment We'd, we've had to build a factory here in one of our buildings to produce things called anode players anode plane assemblies now these are detectors for neutrinos they're going to go down a gold mine oh, wow. in the states and they're going to be detecting the neutrinos that come from PIP2 experiment in Chicago, 800 miles away. So it's those sorts of things that, that really just blow people's minds and why they want to come and work for this organisation. And do you we think about that, are you putting teams together or so are you sort of pulling from a pool of scientists that you have on site or are you inviting people to come and collaborate and, on a specific project? Um, again, it's a bit of both. Um, we work with lots of universities. In fact, I had a meeting this morning with the senior team of Liverpool University and we were talking about the collaborative projects. We've been collaborating with them on a number of things for the, the, the upgrades of the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Mm -hmm. So we've been developing things here on our site with their scientists. We have a really skilled set of scientists and technicians at STFC, but we don't have everybody for everything. Yeah. So as long as we we've, we've got the core right, universities and industry want to work with us. Yeah. So the people come in depending on which which project um, we're we're looking at. So um, we we had a leadership conference um, over the last couple of days in Birmingham, and we brought one of our young people in, and this is somebody who stood there in front of. 130 senior leaders in science and this person had come up from not really having done much in school he said himself it wasn't the way that he learned mm, he became yeah. an apprentice at Darsbury um, and he's gone through the apprentice route 
And what he was telling us about yesterday was the things I've just told you. This is now, at the age of 29, the guy who is leading the production of things called crab cavities for Fermilab. So somebody who didn't really do science in school, didn't really see themselves as academic. He said he wanted to be a forest ranger because it was something he could do with his hands. Now he is making and in charge of a team that is putting together things which, which are just absolutely at the pinnacle of science. Yeah. And, and he is one of our greatest advocates because we send him out to schools and he stands there and he's completely relatable. He's not another white middle-aged bloke like I am. Mm -hmm. He's young. He's, um, he, he is compelling. And, and the kids just relate to him and they start to relate to how they can get involved in something which really is world leading. Could we tell a better national story about science in general? Oh, because absolutely, we could. Everything, 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 your, all the insight that you've been giving me about Darsbury, it, it sounds like it should be somewhere that everybody should visit if they're at all. And, and I know that's not possible. You don't want loads of people knocking on your door and that. But um, I feel like, certainly as a comms person in tech and to a certain degree science, we talk a lot about women in science and diversity in science and bringing people into science. But I'm not sure that um, it's talked about enough as a career to have complete pride in. And in terms of this leading edge stuff, it feels like not enough people know. I, I, I think there's a, there's a very British attitude to this the amount of people that say to me oh we're really good at inventing stuff but we're not really good at taking it to the market that's just codswallop actually mm, we are sound like many people would actually as you say be able to afford the stuff that you make so ah but it's not the stuff that we make it's the things that come out of the stuff that we make right. that's the important bit you know we're heavily involved in in space programs and we work very closely with the european space agency um, I set up many years ago the European Space Agency Business Incubation Centre. And you would think that's about develop, small companies developing rockets. It's not. It's about taking the things that have been used in space and turning them into things that people buy our everyday lives. Um, you know, not many people, when they think of the space industry, think the biggest space company in this country is probably Sky TV. But it is. But, you know, GPS, everything that uses GPS has a space background, but there's also technology stuff that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. So many years ago, I had a, a approached by a, a guy who was, um, he, he described himself as the bed bug man. And his job, he used to get paid lots of money by hotel chains to go and check for bed bugs in the hotels. Mm -hmm. And it takes hours. You have to completely take the room apart. And he said, there must be a better way. And I introduced him to a guy called Geraint Morgan, who had developed uh, an instrument called Ptolemy, which is a, it's what's called an iron trap mass spectrometer, which went on a mission to a comet. Right. But the two got together and they suddenly realized that actually the technology that's being used on the comet could also be used to pick up diagnostic chemicals, which are given off by- Oh, bed I see. Them. So like, do you run it, do you use a sort of a- a, a machine, they, they go in and they press a button and it sucks in the air and it can tell you whether you've got bed bugs. So it's these, these sorts of everyday things that absolutely 
make the difference. And, and we don't do enough of that. And, and, you know, when I show people around, we've got over three billion pounds worth of equipment in SDFC. That's a huge, that's, that's so much money. But actually, every day, those pieces of kit and the people that run them are making a positive contribution yeah. to the UK, to the economy. And it's not because people just want to do crazy things with neutrons or x-rays. Actually, yeah. what they're doing has a translational um, aspect. Yeah. Um, it's, it's translating that into the real world, into the tangible, into the things that, that you see every day. Is it keeping us internationally competitive? Um, undoubtedly, it is. We are very, very good at this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and we are world leading in so many different areas. I think the major problem that we've got in this country isn't about the inventiveness and the innovation and the ability to develop new things. It's about how we fund it. You know, taking those ideas and putting them into companies is relatively easy. I've been chief executive two of those spin-out companies myself in medical diagnostics. The problem comes when you're trying to get people to invest in it, because when you're taking something as fundamental as the things that, that we come up with, um, you, you can't go straight to market. There's a, a really long development program, and it has to be funded from somewhere. So we have to get investment mainly from venture capitalists. And just the funding process in this country, and I'm not the only person saying this, it's really difficult to get the money and the scale of money. So you, you have need. to pitch VCs as well? Um, I, well, not recently, but um, what, what I do is I talk to VCs and get them to come and be interested in our company. In your companies, right. But I, I have been there. I have been the person on the other side of the table from venture capitalists mm -hmm. with a business plan and some tech, some cool tech. Well, I think um, it, it's, it's biology, chemistry, the investment is really ramping up in the VC area there at the moment. I mean, we deal with a lot of med tech companies um, as clients and there's just so much changing. So um, back to space, as I know we weren't actually there, but would you go if, if you were offered a seat on Elon's little jet or Jeff's or? No. no? Not into <laughs> it. <laughs> I, do you know, I would love to, but I've got two youngish kids and, mm. and the risk, there's still too much risk, I think, for, for it, me. It does appear quite risky from the casual observer's perspective. Ask me when I'm 70 and I might give you a different answer. So what do you think is the single most important piece of kit you've got? Uh, I would say my smartphone, but um, mm -hmm. actually at Darsbury, it has to be the supercomputer, I think. Actually, that doesn't do it. We have several supercomputers, but the supercomputers are the ones that, that are really, as, as a, an entity, making the most difference. The, the other things that, that we've got are all component parts in bigger pictures. So I think the supercomputers probably have the greatest capacity to, to make change. Mm -hmm. And how do you manage them as an estate? Have you got sort of a 24 hour team making sure that they're working all the time or is yes. it just one guy? <laughs> no, no, we, 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 have, uh, we have people. Yeah, you can't really ring up 
somebody with a service contract and they'll come no. and turn it off and turn it, turn it on again. These things are fairly complex. And of course, it's not just a supercomputer, it's all of the cooling and all of the infrastructure mm -hmm. and all of that sort of stuff that, that surrounds it. So if yeah, we, we have people. If there's anybody listening who's never seen one, what does yours look like? Any boring rows of boxes with flashy yeah. lights on them to be They're just not boring. You're looking at Darsby's brain right there. They're not boring. <laughs> <laughs> They're really noisy as well. They are, and all I just love all the, the wires and fiber of different sizes and how on earth people keep track of where it goes. Um, do you use cloud? Are you allowed to? You might not be allowed to tell us. Do you use cloud storage or on premise, or have you got lots of things floating around? Um, we use cloud storage for non business critical type mm -hmm. things, but we have to have our own secure storage capabilities as well. We don't just look after our own data. Um, because we're part of UK research and innovation. Mm -hmm. We actually look after things like um, Earth observation data for the um, Natural Environment Research Council mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. So, so some of the stuff that we've got actually um, potentially a bit sensitive, but also very valuable. So we need to make sure that, that we've got it pretty much nailed down. Well, um, I think we've covered a lot of the fantastic innovation that's going on at the moment, but is there anything you'd like to mention that we haven't spoken about that you think that people should know that's going on there at the moment? Um, yes. So, so I think one, the, the government's just come up with, um, with seven technology families. Yes. And one of them that they're really interested in is quantum computing. Yes. And quantum computing is something that, of course, we're quite interested in as well. So we're developing the National Quantum Computing Centre. So we will have a centre to, to do quantum computing. I think that... That's fantastic. <laughs> so I think quantum computing, of all of the things, if we can get it to work, probably has one of the greatest potentials for, for changing the way things are done. Not least because, of course, it means that all of the encryption in all of your devices is completely useless. So, so there are all sorts That's of... Fine. <laughs> because... <laughs> How, how would having a national, a national quantum computer, computing specialist centre here, um, how would that affect us all in general? Um, it's going to make some problems, which at the moment are almost intractable mm -hmm. every day. You can solve them every day. The, 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 not all computing problems can be addressed with quantum. It, it's not going to be the, the solve or it's not going to be the universal panacea, but some things that are not, we're not capable of doing them at the moment will be solved with quantum. And, and in some ways, we don't even know what those are. So yeah. I think it will open up all sorts of new vistas for us. So I think quantum is, is something that we need to, to, as a nation, we need to embrace and we need to fund it and we need to make sure. And the other one is fusion, of course, because if we can crack the fusion problem, it completely solves the, the energy. I was once told that one cubic kilometre of seawater contains more energy that is addressable through fusion that has been used by the entire human race in all of its history. And it doesn't produce any carbon. That's bonkers. Wow. Okay. That again, almost beyond my 
sometimes science makes me feel really small <laughs> just really um significant yet insignificant but it also gives you a, another fantastic appreciation for nature so, so much of the stuff we've talked about today starts with nature well if, if you want to, to know how small science can really make you um, the James Webb Space Telescope that went up on Christmas Day, mm -hmm. um, there are four instruments on it. We developed one of those called MIRI. And because we're part of the, the bigger programme, we're starting to see images from it. Okay. But I, I saw an image yesterday where they were just calibrating it on one star. But when you look into the background, there are just galaxies and galaxies and galaxies, and they're not even operating it properly yet. Oh, wow. And that, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck because that's how small we are. Yeah, and that makes me even less likely to get on SpaceX right now, not that I've had an invite <laughs> or anything. Um, tell me, um, I'm gonna ask you a question that we ask everybody. Um, if you found yourself in an Uber with the current health secretary, unlikely, but you never know, what would you speak to him about if you had 10 minutes? Last time I met him down at Harwell, I guess, but uh, no, maybe, <laughs> maybe the <laughs> name dropping. Um, I've been involved in two medical diagnostic startups. Okay. Um, and I want to know why we as a country aren't putting more emphasis on early stage diagnosis rather than long-term and expensive treatment. Treatment, yeah. We have some amazing businesses in the UK that are coming up with some amazing technology that with the right sort of screening programs would allow us to detect all sorts of, of medical issues way before you get to the point of somebody collapsing and having to be rushed into hospital. Yeah. And it's that um, diagnosis and early treatment, I think, has to be a much, much bigger component of the healthcare system in this country. It's so much easier to diagnose and treat early than to deal with the problems they have. It's the good news that everybody wants to hear. You know, we do have a couple of clients um, here at the agency who are involved in that kind of that kind of work and when you do stories about it it just makes you realize that there'll be people sitting there reading them thinking thank god you know I'm not going to have to wait or this will help my son or you know it, yeah it's the good news that we could do with and it sounds to me like it's with facilities like yours it can only be a matter of time before things are really reversed there now um, we're out of time and I don't think I've ever said wow so much in a podcast interview <laughs> this has been my absolute pleasure thank you so much for joining me today I can't I really hope that um, I really hope that lots of people listen to this and really truly appreciate all the work that goes in and, and all the just incredible things you're doing so thank you so much it's a pleasure from me too I love talking about these things oh well I'm just thrilled thank you so so much cheers Paul cheers bye-bye Real.
Hello, welcome to the next Tech to Transform podcast. I'm Eleanor Willock. I'm the Managing Director at Mantis and I've got an amazing guest today. I'd like to um, introduce everybody to Paul Vernon. Paul, hello. Hello Eleanor and uh, thank you for such a fabulous introduction. So perhaps you can tell everybody listening where you are and what you do. Sure, so I'm the Executive Director of Business and Innovation for the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Um, which is part of UK Research and Innovation, which is the £8 billion plus funding agency, which is part of government. Um, but I have another job as well because I'm the head of Darsbury Laboratory, which is the UK's national laboratory in the North. Which, if anybody is listening who works in technology or the science technology field, will, everybody will be very happy to. I'm very excited, I think, to learn more about Darsbury. So perhaps we better kick off by explaining those two roles. Perhaps if you explain UKRI first, and then we'll talk about Darsbury and its role. Okay, well, UKRI was set up three and four years ago, I think, now, um, by the merging of seven research councils, Innovate UK and Research England, under one umbrella. Yeah. So we used to have um, chief executives in each of those individual entities. We now have executive chairs and there is one overall uh, chief executive of UKRI who is Professor Dame Ottoline Laser. Mm -hmm. um, UKRI is, uh, it reports effectively to um, the business, energy, industrial strategy department. So quasi quarting, I guess, and ultimately Boris Johnson, they're, they're my bosses. Cool line managers. So um, tell us how Darsbury fits into that mix. Okay, well, I work for the Science and Technology Facilities Council, which is one of the original um, seven research councils. And UK, UKRI, when it brought all of them together, uh, there's a lot of commonality amongst the research councils. Uh, a lot of what they do is, is about funding research, primarily in universities. And STFC does some of that as well, mm -hmm. um, but we fund the research in universities around astronomy and particle physics. Um, but actually what sets us apart from the other research councils is that we run the national laboratories. Mm -hmm. Our national laboratories are there to provide the national scale research infrastructure and to support international research infrastructure. Um, the kit that we have at our laboratories is the sort of stuff really that only national governments can afford. Industry can't afford it. Universities certainly can't afford it. Mm -hmm. So if somebody needs a, a neutron source, you can't go and buy one on eBay. No. What you have to do is you have to develop these things up. And we have ISIS, our neutron source, which is um, the most cited neutron source in the world, I think. But just saying a neutron source really doesn't do this thing justice. So actually, <laughs> It is vast. We have two enormous hangars, which are just full of concrete and instrumentation. Uh, we are the major shareholder, 86% shareholder, in the Diamond Light Source, which is the UK's national synchrotron. And this is an enormous donut-shaped thing in the middle of the Oxfordshire countryside, um, which uh, is absolutely fundamental to supporting high-end science in the UK. Wasn't we have it on some the news recently. Sorry? Wasn't it on the news recently? 
it's it's on the news all of the time. I yeah. don't know if you saw um, what was on recently. I'm I'm often sat there with my children watching science programs because I make them watch science programs. Good. And and the diamond light source turns up, and I say, oh, that's that's one of ours, and they they look quite bored, to be honest with you. But for a nerd like me, it's it's mind blowing. Um, wow. We have some of the world's most intense pulse lasers. So we have a laser called Vulcan, which I'm reliably informed manages to focus the entire energy output of the continental US down onto the head of a pin. That's so, going to be useful. That's going to be useful at some point, I'm sure. I can't. I find it so hard to comprehend that kind of energy. And, and that's a, that's for high energy plasma physics and research into fusion, which is potentially one of the. Um, the, the solutions to our energy problem. Energy crisis, yeah. Um, we, we've got our own space department. We manufacture space instrumentation. There are over 200 instruments that have been launched into space that we've made at SDFC. So it's, it's really, really big, expensive stuff. So not many people will have been inside the facility, or I, I'm, I'm sure not many people listening today. Can you walk me through it? So um, tell us, where it is and um, the sorts of people that might work there and, and what it might look like if I was to come through the front door. Yeah, okay, well, Darsbury is based in the northwest of England. It's about halfway between Liverpool and Manchester. And um, it, was, it was originally established in 1962, so this is our 60th year, so we're, um, we're gonna be celebrating that sometime later on in the year. And it was set up um, to house something called the Northern Institute's Nuclear Accelerator, or NEMA. And um, so back, back then, there was, these things weren't very common. And um, we had a, a scientist who, who came up with this idea that if he cut a hole in the side of it, he'd managed to get something called synchrotron radiation out of it. And um, they allowed him to do that. And, and synchrotron radiation came out. And that became so popular that they took that away and they built the world's first dedicated synchrotron. So we have um, just over here, a, a circular concrete building, which is the birthplace of synchrotron radiation. There are 70 odd synchrotrons in the world. now. Every single one of them can trace its genesis back to this site here. Every wow. single drug that comes on the market comes to the market because ultimately of work that was done here. So there's a real history to this place. The three Nobel Prizes that were worked on on this site, um, but things can't stand still. So the synchrotron came to an end and um, we decided that what we needed to do was actually broaden the appeal of the laboratory. So we continue to develop absolutely cutting edge stuff here, um, but we've gone and built what some people call a science park around us. So we've co-located with loads of really nice shiny new buildings, mm -hmm. nearly 150 real high-tech cutting-edge companies around the National Laboratory. So we still got our science stuff here. We have the Hartree Centre, which is the um, a national centre for artificial intelligence. We were really proud to be given £200 million last year to set up the Hartree National Centre for Digital Innovation. And, and what that is, it doesn't look that exciting, to be honest with you. It's a really nice building with lots of really clever people in there. But it's based around artificial intelligence, machine okay. learning, cognitive computing. So we've got huge amounts of computational horsepower in there. 
we have real state-of-the-art visualization. So we've got a screen in there, which is, um, I think, 30 foot by eight foot, but curved. And it works in 3D. So we can elucidate a protein structure on our synchrotron, turn it into a CAD file, fire it onto our um, screen, and you can put the goggles on, and this enormous protein appears floating in the air in front of you. Oh, wow. And you can, you can walk, walk in, inside it. You can walk into it and you can start to work out where the active sites are. So if you're into drug discovery, you can start to design molecules that will fit into those active sites just by looking at them. That, that actually brings me on to my second question, which is why... Uh, and the general public and the civil service in general, why we need DARSBRI and why we need UKRI. So what's it bringing to our daily lives by having such a fantastic facility? It's an interesting question. I get asked it a lot, actually. Um, most people don't really know what a neutron is, let alone what a neutron can do for them. So a lot of what we do is trying to explain to people that you know, having something the size of two hangers, which costs an awful lot of money a year to, to run, is absolutely fundamental to the economic health of the country. Now, SDFC spends, sorry, invests somewhere in the region of 800 million pounds of taxpayers' money every year. Um, and we have to be conscious that every pound that comes into this place has to show a return. Because otherwise, yeah. why, why would the government, why would the taxpayers put up with us spending their money to do science? And the reason we do it is that science is just so important. It underpins all of the, the lifestyle that we have at the moment. The things that we do impact on everybody's lives. I did have a, um, an interesting recent conversation. I was chairing a roundtable of geneticists and one of the things that came up regarding funding was um, genetics's sort of lack of glitz and glamour um, leads it to not always be first place for funding for um, research and development and extra projects and um, things like that. And um, despite its enormous importance to the longevity of the human race. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And, and I have a particular resonance with that because I'm a biochemist. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the problem with biochemistry and genetics and things like that, there's nothing flash and shiny to show people. You know, I spent three years of my life pretty much staring at a spectrophotometer when mm -hmm. I was doing, doing my degree. What's that? It's uh, a device that measures the change in light that goes through a sample. And that's how, how a lot of biology, biochemistry is actually done. You're looking for a, a color change and, and you infer things from it. Um, our stuff, you know, you can't necessarily see the things that are going on, but you need these massive pieces of kit to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and science isn't all about big, shiny stuff. You know, it's about the incremental. It's about what the big, shiny stuff will allow you to do. And you talk yeah. about genetics. Well, genetics ultimately is about proteins. And, and just what I was saying, um, we have the ability, because our systems to all intents and purposes of very, very large microscopes. And we can look at individual protein molecules 
and, and we can look at, um, at, at genes and we can look at mutations in genes and we can look at how those mutations affect the proteins because that's ultimately what a gene, gene mutation leads yeah. on to. And by looking at that, and, and we can visualize it, you know, we can take that protein, we can get the structure of it, and we can actually look at an atom by atom map of how that protein has changed. And that allows us to design the drugs, as I said before. Um, it allows us to look at proteins that are involved in photosynthesis. So we might be able to, to change how those proteins work so it makes them more efficient. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're looking at the food crisis at the moment. So increasing the, um, the, the yield from crops yep. by the sorts of genetic mutations around improving their yield or, or improving their resistance to, to insects and, and pests. Those are the sorts of real tangible things. But, you know, I've been talking about neutrons a lot. So why do we need neutrons? Um, every time you pick up your mobile phone, your mobile phone contains memory and it contains batteries. The memory and the batteries in your mobile phones have been developed from work around neutrons. Okay. So those neutrons allow us to make much more, um, much smaller, faster, more effective and more energy efficient um, processes. They allow us to explore new battery chemistry, which allows greater energy density in the storage. So your faster, smarter, shiny smartphone lasts for a day or two days now, even though it's got an incredibly power hungry processor, because that processor has been optimized using the sorts of things that we've got. And the battery has been developed to be much more energy dense because we provide those facilities. So this might be, a, this is a bit off topic, but the research that you're doing, are you working on alongside scientists from companies like NXP or ARM to develop that? Or are you sharing research or how does it work? Which comes first? Um, all of the above, really. Mm. Um, our facilities are amongst the best in the world. And the, the research output from the UK, we punch way above our weight. Mm -hmm. You know, we are second only to the US in paper citations. Right. So the, the UK, the research and the innovation that goes on here really is world-class. A lot of it is done in universities and the universities apply to research councils like us for funding to access our facilities. Um, we also allow um, businesses, industry, to access our facilities. Okay. So um, it's well documented that Unilever use our, uh, our ISIS neutron source to look at different types of surfactants, so shampoos and soaps, and develop new detergents and things mm -hmm. like that. But they're also working with us at our Hartree Centre so at one end, we've got the, the physical work around real soaps and surfactants, but at the heart tree, they're developing them in silica. So they're developing virtual models of the molecules of these soaps and surfactants, which means you don't have to go and spend a huge amount of time and money in chemistry labs producing these things. No. You can imagine them in a computer 
and we can model how they work. I think modeling is to this, you know, comparatively weakling science brain, modeling has, has changed so much about what we can achieve, hasn't it? Because it's it's so much of a yeah safer resource in lots well, of we've, we've got a system over there which is a virtual wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, virtual course, wind tunnel. Virtual wind tunnel. And and we've got it on a huge screen, so you can have a full-size car in a virtual wind tunnel. Virtual wind tunnel. Um, and by the flick of a switch or press of a button, you can change the car. You can either change the shape of what's in there or you can change, we've got models of models. So we can stick a Range Rover in there. We worked with um, a company called Briggs Automotive, which is based not far from us here. And they, they build a single seater car called the Mono. Mm-hmm. And working with them in our virtual wind tunnel, we were able to increase the downforce and the efficiency of their car, but mm-hmm. nobody actually went and made it. We did it all virtually. Would a Formula One prototyping team do the same? Or would they? Formula One does things very similar, I must mm-hmm. admit. But of course, if a Formula One company has that sort of system, which most of them do, they're not going to let not going to let a small or medium-sized enterprise no. that needs access to them to get there. So I you know, know, in some ways, that's what we do. We democratize democratizing science, yeah cutting edge stuff because even the large companies generally can't afford the sorts of things that we've got so they come to us but we don't differentiate the Mm -hmm. small companies get access to what we've got just as much as the big companies do and we've got funding schemes also to make it happen so it's not cheap to access some of our things but we can fund it sometimes for these businesses and it you know it's real game-changing stuff because they can do things that, that they would never have imagined were possible. And by being, at, certainly if you look at the way we, we use our, our supercomputers and our, our modeling capabilities, the, the ability to come in and do things on a computer instead of going and building a physical prototype saves a huge amount of time and money and effort. I'm a big fan of supercomputers. I've, um... I've been lucky enough to work on um, IBM for a big part of my career on the supercomputing team. And uh, I will actually never forget the first supercomputer I saw in action, which was the Mare Nostrum in Barcelona, which is obviously beautiful because it's inside a big converted church, but I was astounded. And um, this, but I felt the same um, when I went to Bletchley Park as well. Bletchley Park just blew my mind. Um, it just felt so incredible to be somewhere where so much changed. <laughs> really. well, Bletchley Park is the uh, the birthplace, pretty much, of computation. And Belgium yeah. is the birthplace of synchrotron radiation. But computation is incredibly important to us here as well. Well, you're the near Hartree- enough. You're near enough to Manchester, aren't you? So it's all about yeah, during. Yeah. Well, the, the Hartree National Centre for Digital Innovation is in collaboration with IBM. Yeah. Um, and actually, one of the developments that we're doing on site here at the moment is we're just we're having to build a new supercomputing center because the supercomputing center that we've got isn't big enough for the next generation of machine that we're going to be bringing here. Um, but we're doing it responsibly. One of the things that, that is, is a thread throughout what we do, it's about sustainability. OK, you, you can never make supercomputers ultra sustainable. No. Because they consume by necessity huge amounts of energy 
Um, that energy has to be seen as an investment into the future. That doesn't mean you can't do your best to make sure that your supercomputer and supercomputing center is efficient as they can be. So we're putting solar panels on the roof. We're looking at ground source cooling. We're looking at reusing the heat to heat other buildings here. Sure. Um, this might be a bit off topic, but how does the, um, in inverted commas, energy crisis affect a place like yours that uses so much electricity? Um, well, it's a challenge. Yeah. You know, our energy bill has gone up 20 million pounds this year. Right. That's quite a significant jump, isn't it? It is a significant jump, yeah. Um, we were already doing quite a lot to try and mitigate that. You can't mitigate it down to, to nothing. We have two enormous campuses which mm -hmm. have very energy intensive pieces of kit on them. Um, so we've got an environmental sustainability plan, which is about making our, our real estate better. But I think the biggest impact that we can make as an organization is to try and develop the future. Yeah, make it count. So a lot of the things that we're doing, we have a number of research pro projects, which some of them are ours. So we use our own facilities to look at um, uh, new ways to, to reduce energy and decarbonize. We've just spun out a company, um, which is called Sunborn Systems, which is a joint venture with a company called Reaction Engines. Mm -hmm. um, and Sunborn Systems is about um, getting away from carbon-based fuels. So we have, we've developed the ability to use ammonia as a fuel. Oh, wow. Um, and we have technology which allows us to break the ammonia down into hydrogen. So hydrogen is one of those, those things that people are talking about as, as a, the future of energy. Um, ammonia actually though is already there. Hydrogen's not there, it's not easy to move around, it's not easy to produce, not easy to store. Ammonia is the second biggest bulk chemical shipped around the world. So if we can start using that as a fuel. Is it? Behind yeah. what? What's first? Crude oil. Crude oil. I think. Makes sense. Um, but ammonia, um, ammonia won't burn enough for engines. But if you run it through a system called a cracker, we can break some of that ammonia down to hydrogen. And a hydrogen and ammonia mix, you can tailor the burn. So you can be really smart. So ultimately, we could fuel jet engines in aircraft from ammonia with a cracker system. So you've immediately got to jet zero. Immediately, he's overstating it. These can, ammonia, can ammonia be a, um, an animal byproduct? Well, ammonia is yeah. urea. It's from I, I, it? yeah. I have to put AdBlue into my um, my car. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really derived from pig's urine, but mm -hmm. it's the ammonia in it. That uh, ammonia is currently actually made from, um, believe it or not, natural gas. Yeah. You take that yeah. natural gas, run it through a steam methane reformer, which um, strips out the carbon dioxide and makes hydrogen. And that's reacted with nitrogen in the Harbour Bosch process, uh, and you get um, you get ammonia. We've actually done that in a completely green way. So we have a wind turbine which is connected up to a Harbour Bosch system, so we can make completely green ammonia from winter from a wind turbine. 
and then we can take it and burn it in an engine. So we've got this this system which we're demonstrating um, where you can you can make green ammonia. You must be. I mean, you're obviously surrounded by every type of every sort of vertical of science every day, and um, how how immersed are you in the technology that goes with it? Do you have to pay lots of attention to the um, the tech that sort of drives this along? I, I guess you don't have to. You know, I'm the director of the lab, and and my job is really to go out and make people realise how amazing this place is, and make sure that we have the, the interest because ultimately, you know, we are government funded, and and we have an audience, and the audience. Some people like to think it's the politicians. Actually, it's the voters, it's taxpayers. Mm. We need to prove to them that it's something that's worthwhile. You don't necessarily need to be right at the, the forefront in my job of the science. The problem that I've got, of course, is that I've been a nerd since as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. And it just fascinates me. And, I, can, and I can tell by the way you talk about it. You're so you're just so involved. It's fantastic. Um, so know, that's what keeps me here. It's just every wow. day there's something amazing. You know, just before I came to talk to you, um, I, I was having a tour of something that we have on site. So we're working with a company called Advanced Oncotherapy, and they're developing a new generation of proton therapy systems for treating cancer. Mm -hmm. And I've just been to have a look around what it is these guys are doing. And it's not just them, it's our people. It's the people mm -hmm. in SCFC, in Darsbury Laboratory, are working hand in hand with the people in advanced oncotherapy and with, with colleagues from CERN as well. I'm off to CERN in a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Um, and we're working together to produce a new type of cancer therapy system. That's on the site here. You couldn't help but be enthralled by that, could you? I was going to ask, theoretically, if you had an open day, what would be drawing the biggest crowd? What would, what would people be thronged around at the lab? I think the easiest thing for people to understand is the visualisation around mm -hmm. the supercomputer. Um, there's plenty of other stuff as well. Do you know, we, we get a bit blasé about it. So I can look out of my window here and just over there, there's, there's a, a rather unprepossessing white thing stuck in the car park. It's the world's first ever MRI scanner, magnetic really? resonance imaging. It's just at the back here. We need to do something with it, actually. We'll probably put it in a museum, but it's just sat over here. You can get a bit blasé about this when you're... I'm sure. When you work in this an organisation like this. You know, you can take people around the place and, you know, the world's... Have fast. you got it because you invented it? No, no, we were using the magnets. The oh, time. OK, as you do. <laughs> Recycling, upcycling, fantastic. Actually, that, that, those things are, are enabled by an invention that came out of the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. It's called Rutherford Cable, which has enabled all of this superconducting type stuff. But, you know, those are just things from history. So, so what else just, would people want to see? I don't know. I the accelerators are amazing. I ask because um, you mentioned your kids. I've got children too. And I'm thinking my daughter had um, a, a, 
a mad scientist come to school and do experiments on the stage, you know, showing them how chemicals react to each other. And she came home buzzing about it, absolutely buzzing. Um, but then in Bristol, which is our nearest city, there's a museum called We the Curious, which is dedicated to science. And all the things there that really excite the children are the visualizations. So the big, you know, anything they can be inside and touch and, and, and things like that. And I'm wondering how, what's drawing young adults and future scientists in at the moment? It... Hmm. Why do people come and work here? Well, we've been, we do quite a bit of staff engagement, staff surveys and things. Um, if you go and do a science, degree, particularly in the areas that, that we're in, um, you know about STFC. And STFC is such an amazing organisation that people want to come and work for us. Mm -hmm. um, because it really is, it, it's right at the pinnacle. Yeah. You know, the, there's some things that, that we're just doing here on, on Darsbury. We're developing um, the cryo modules for PIP2. Now, this is, this is over in the States, Fermilab, world famous national lab in the states they come to us to develop the accelerators mm -hmm. for the next um, uh, experiment We'd, we've had to build a factory here in one of our buildings to produce things called anode players anode plane assemblies now these are detectors for neutrinos they're going to go down a gold mine oh, wow. in the states and they're going to be detecting the neutrinos that come from the PIP2 experiment in Chicago, 800 miles away. So it's those sorts of things that, that really just blow people's minds and why they want to come and work for this organisation. And do you think about people, that, are you putting teams together or so are you sort of pulling from a pool of scientists that you have on site or are you inviting people to come and collaborate and, on a specific project? Um, again, it's a bit of both. Um, we work with lots of universities. In fact, I had a meeting this morning with the senior team of Liverpool University and we were talking about the collaborative projects. We've been collaborating with them on a number of things for the, the, the upgrades of the Large Hadron Collider in CERN. Mm -hmm. So we've been developing things here on our site with their scientists. We have a really skilled set of scientists and technicians at STFC, but we don't have everybody for everything. Yeah. So as long as we've, we've got the core right, universities and industry want to work with us. Yeah. So the people come in depending on which, which project um, we're, we're looking at. So um, we, we had a leadership conference um, of the last couple of days in Birmingham, and we brought one of our young people in. And this is somebody who stood there in front of 130 senior leaders in science. And this person had come up from not really having done much in school. He said himself, it wasn't the way that he learned. Mm, he became yeah. an apprentice at Darsbury um, and he's gone through the apprentice route. And what he was telling us about yesterday was the things I've just told you. This is now at the age of 29, the guy who is leading the production of things called crab cavities for Fermilab. So somebody who didn't really do science in school, didn't really see themselves as academic, 
He said he wanted to be a forest ranger because it was something he could do with his hands. Now he is making and in charge of a team that is putting together things which, which are just absolutely at the pinnacle of science. Yeah. And, and he is one of our greatest advocates because we send him out to schools and he stands there and he's completely relatable. He's not another white middle-aged bloke like I am. Mm -hmm. He's young. He's, um, he, he is compelling. And, and the kids just relate to him and they start to relate to how they can get involved in something which really is world leading. Could we tell a better national story about science in general? Oh, because absolutely, we could. Everything, everything, everything. Your all the insight that you've been giving me about Darsbury, it, it sounds like it should be somewhere that everybody should visit if they're at all. And, and I know that's not possible. You don't want loads of people knocking on your door and that. But um, I feel like certainly as a comms person in tech and to a certain degree science, we talk a lot about women in science and diversity in science and bringing people into science. But I'm not sure that um, it's talked about enough as a career to have complete pride in. And in terms of this leading edge stuff, it feels like not enough people know. I, I, I think there's a, there's a very British attitude to this the amount of people that say to me oh we're really good at inventing stuff but we're not really good at taking it to the market that's just codswallop actually mm, we are like many people would actually as you say be able to afford the stuff that you make so ah but it's not the stuff that we make it's the things that come out of the stuff that we make right. that's the important bit you know we're heavily involved in in space programs and we work very closely with the european space agency um, I set up many years ago the European Space Agency Business Incubation Centre. And you would think that's about develop, small companies developing rockets. It's not. It's about taking the things that have been used in space and turning them into things that people buy our everyday lives. Um, you know, not many people, when they think of the space industry, think the biggest space company in this country is probably Sky TV. But it is. But, you know, GPS, everything that uses GPS has a space background, but there's also technology stuff that comes out of it. Mm -hmm. So many years ago, I had a, a approached by a, a guy who was, um, he, he described himself as the bed bug man. And his job, he used to get paid lots of money by hotel chains to go and check for bed bugs in the hotels. Mm -hmm. And it takes hours. You have to completely take the room apart. And he said, there must be a better way. And I introduced him to a guy called Geraint Morgan, who had developed uh, an instrument called Ptolemy, which is a, it's what's called an iron trap mass spectrometer, which went on a mission to a comet. Right. And the two got together and they suddenly realized that actually the technology that's being used on the comet could also be used to pick up diagnostic chemicals, which are given off by- Oh, I see. Them. So like, do you run it, do you use a sort of a- Got a machine. They, they go in and they press a button and it sucks in the air and it can tell you whether you've got bed bugs. So it's these, these sorts of everyday things that absolutely make the difference. And, and we don't do enough of that. And, and, you know, when I show people around, we've got over three billion pounds worth of equipment in SDFC. That's a huge, that's, that's so much money. But actually, Every day, those pieces of kit and the people that run them 
are making a positive contribution yeah. to the UK, to the economy. And it's not because people just want to do crazy things with neutrons or x-rays. Actually, yeah. what they're doing has a translational um, aspect. Yeah. Um, it's, it's translating that into the real world, into the tangible, into the things that, that you see every day. Is it keeping us internationally competitive? Um, undoubtedly, it is. We are very, very good at this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and we are world leading in so many different areas. I think the major problem that we've got in this country isn't about the inventiveness and the innovation and the ability to develop new things. It's about how we fund it. You know, taking those ideas and putting them into companies is relatively easy. I've been chief executive two of those spin-out companies myself in medical diagnostics. The problem comes when you're trying to get people to invest in it, because when you're taking something as fundamental as the things that that we come up with, um, you you can't go straight to market. There's a a really long development program, and it has to be funded from somewhere. So we have to get investment mainly from venture capitalists. And just the funding process in this country, and, and I'm not the only person saying this. It's really difficult to get the money and the scale of money. So you, you have need. to pitch VCs as well? Um, I, well, not recently, but um, what, what I do is I talk to VCs and get them to come and be interested in our company. In your companies, right. But I, I have been there. I have been the person on the other side of the table from venture capitalists mm-hmm. with a business plan and some tech, some cool tech. Well, I think um, it, it's it's biology chemistry the investment is really ramping up in the vc area there at the moment i mean we deal with a lot of med tech companies um as clients and there's just so much changing so um back to space as i know we weren't actually there but would you go if if you were offered a seat on elon's little jet or jeff's or no not into it (laughs) do you know i would love to but I've got two youngish kids and, mm. and the risk, there's still too much risk, I think, for, for it, me. It does appear quite risky from the casual observer's perspective. Ask me when I'm 70 and I might give you a different answer. So what do you think is the single most important piece of kit you've got? Uh, I would say my smartphone, but um, mm-hmm. actually it does, Brie. It has to be the supercomputer, I think. Actually, that doesn't do it. We have several supercomputers, but the supercomputers are the ones that, that are really, as, as a, an entity, making the most difference. The, the other things that, that we've got are all component parts in bigger pictures. So I think the supercomputers are, probably have the greatest capacity to to make change mm-hmm. and how do you manage them as an estate have you got sort of a 24-hour team making sure that they're working all the time or yes. is it just one guy <laughs> no no we 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 have uh, we have people yeah you can't really ring up somebody with a service contract and they'll come no. and turn it <laughs> off and turn it turn it on again these things are fairly complex and of course, it's not just a supercomputer, it's all of the cooling and all of the infrastructure mm-hmm. and all of that sort of stuff that, that surrounds it. So, if yeah, there, we, we have people. So. If there's anybody listening who's never seen one, what does yours look like? Boring rows of 
boxes with flashy yeah. lights on them to be they're just not boring you're looking at Darsby's brain right there they're not <laughs> boring <laughs> they're really noisy as well they are and all I just love all the the wires and fiber of different sizes and how on earth people keep track of where it goes um do you use cloud are you allowed to you might not be allowed to tell us do you use cloud storage or on-premise or have you got lots of things floating around um, we use cloud storage for non-business critical type mm -hmm. things, but we have to have our own secure storage capabilities as well. We don't just look after our own data um, because we're part of UK research and innovation. Mm -hmm. We actually look after things like um, Earth observation data for the um, Natural Environment Research Council mm -hmm. and those sorts of things. So, so some of the stuff that we've got actually... Um, potentially a bit sensitive, but also very valuable. So we need to make sure that, that we've got it pretty much nailed down. Well, um, I think we've covered a lot of the fantastic innovation that's going on at the moment, but is there anything you'd like to mention that we haven't spoken about that you think that people should know that's going on there at the moment? Um, yes, so, so I think one, the, the government's just come up with, um, with seven technology families. Yes. And one of them that they're really interested in is quantum computing. Yes. And quantum computing is something that, of course, we're quite interested in as well. So we're developing the National Quantum Computing Center. So we will have a center to, to do quantum computing. I think that... Fantastic. <laughs> so I think quantum computing, of all of the things, if we can get it to work, probably has one of the greatest potentials for, for changing the way things are done. Not least because, of course, it means that all of the encryption in all of your devices is completely useless. So, so there are all sorts of... <laughs> so, um, how, how would having the National, uh, National Quantum Computer, Computing Specialist Centre here, um, how would that affect us all in general? Um, it's going to make some problems which at the moment are almost intractable mm -hmm. every day you can solve them every day the, the the not all computing problems can be addressed with quantum it, it's not going to be the the solver it's not going to be the universal panacea but some things that are not we're not capable of doing them at the moment will be solved with quantum and, and in some ways, we don't even know what those are. So yeah. I think it will open up all sorts of new vistas for us. So I think quantum is, is something that we need to, to, as a nation, we need to embrace and we need to fund it and we need to make sure. And the other one is fusion, of course, because if we can crack the fusion problem, it completely solves the, the energy. I was once told that one cubic kilometre of seawater contains more energy that is addressable through fusion that has been used by the entire human race in all of its history. And it doesn't produce any carbon. That's bonkers. Wow, okay, that again, almost beyond my, sometimes science makes me feel really small, <laughs> just really um, significant yet insignificant, but it also gives you a another fantastic appreciation for nature. So, so much of the stuff we've talked about today starts with nature. Well, if, if you want to, to know how small science can really make you, um, the James Webb Space Telescope that went up on Christmas Day mm -hmm. um, 
there are four instruments on it. We developed one of those called Miri. And because we're part of the, the bigger program, we're starting to see images from it. Okay. But I, I saw an image yesterday where they were just calibrating it on one star. But when you look into the background, there are just galaxies and galaxies and galaxies, and they're not even operating it properly yet. Oh, wow. And that, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck because that's how small we are. Yeah, and that makes me even less likely to get on SpaceX right now, not that I've had an invite <laughs> or anything. Um, tell me, um, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask everybody. Um, if you found yourself in an Uber with the current health secretary, unlikely, but you never know, what would you speak to him about if you had 10 minutes? Last time I met him down at Harwell, I guess, but uh, no, maybe, <laughs> maybe the... <laughs> name dropping. Um, I've been involved in two medical diagnostic startups. Okay. Um, and I want to know why we as a country aren't putting more emphasis on early stage diagnosis rather than long-term and expensive treatment. Treatment, yeah. We have some amazing businesses in the UK that are coming up with some amazing technology that with the right sort of screening programs would allow us to detect all sorts of, of medical issues way before you get to the point of somebody collapsing and having to be rushed into hospital. Yeah. And it's that um, diagnosis and early treatment, I think has to be a much, much bigger component of the healthcare system in this country it's so much easier to diagnose and treat early than to deal with the problems later it's the good news that everybody wants to hear you know we do have a couple of clients um here at the agency who are involved in that kind of that kind of work and when you do stories about it it just makes you realize that there'll be people sitting there reading them thinking thank god you know, I'm not going to have to wait or this will help my son or, you know, it, yeah, it's the good news that we could do with. And it sounds to me like it's with facilities like yours, it can only be a matter of time before things are really reversed there. Now, um, we're out of time and I don't think I've ever said wow so much in a podcast interview. <laughs> this has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. I can't, I really hope that, um, I really hope that lots of people listen to this and really truly appreciate all the work that goes in and all the just incredible things you're doing. So thank you so much. It's a pleasure from me too. I love talking about these things. Oh, well, I'm just thrilled. Thank you so, so much. Mm -hmm.